Let me ask you to take your Bibles, and if when I say that you don't have a Bible to take, then you need to bring your Bible so that when I say that you have something to do. And if you don't, if you don't have a, a Bible at home, we do have copies here that uh, we would be glad to give to you. Uh, but if you will turn to the book of Romans, if you don't know where Romans is, uh, look in the index in the front of your Bible. Uh, I'm going to ask you to put your finger in there for about the next year and a half. Uh, And you go, oh no, here we go, huh? Uh, I've never preached through Romans. I have taught through it many times. And uh, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Before we read the passage, um, we will be in it for a while. But I have to tell you that it's uh, going to be nothing like some of the great series in Romans that have been preached and uh, written. We have in our reference library two multi-volume uh, uh, texts of Romans, one by Martin Lloyd-Jones and one by James Montgomery Boyce. And uh, both of them were just uh, amazing uh, biblical expositors. But to give you an idea of what we are approaching and the challenge that we have, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on Romans every week for 13 years. Now the passage that I'm preaching on today, uh, Romans 1, 1 through 7, he preached 13 sermons on and had uh, about 180 pages of texts in, uh, in terms of um, in, in the commentaries that were put together from his messages. And so I appreciate your prayers as I approach uh, this amazing book. And uh, the, the prayer is not that I'll have enough to preach on. That's never a problem with any books in the Bible. But the prayer would be what to say when you just can't say everything, because there is so much there. And that's also where I see uh, the beauty of our community groups and how they are going to be able to flesh out some of the things that we just aren't going to have time to uh, touch on here. In the book of Romans, uh, the first 11 chapters, some would say those are, are uh, purely theology. They are, but we're going to apply that theology. Uh, we will see grace. We will see justification, sanctification, glorification, uh, and don't worry if you don't know what any of those mean, because we will uh, see from the Apostle Paul uh, the, the outworking of what that means in the gospel. And then the latter part of the book, 
12 through 16, uh, he gets very, very practical in terms of uh, what this means in the church and in our lives. Now, the book of Romans has had a profound effect upon Christianity and upon uh, some of the, the giants of the faith. For instance, Augustine, who uh, I think most would say would be the, the greatest figure in the early church between uh, Paul and Luther, uh, Augustine was converted after reading in Romans 13, and he, this is what he, he said. Instantly, as the sentence ended, by a light, as it were, of security infused into my heart, all gloom of doubt was vanished away. What a testimony. And then Martin Luther, and we will hear a lot more about about him as we, we go it particularly into the doctrines of justification and what that, that means for us. But he calls Romans the, the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. He believed, now this, take this to heart, okay? He believed that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, and occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of his soul. I promise you if you do that, that'll make a change in your life. Uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge uh, was an English poet, and he called the book of Romans the profoundest book in existence. Now, I know that doesn't sound like good English, but he was an English poet, so that must be good English to be able to say the profoundest book in existence. And then Godet, who was a Swiss commentator, wrote that in all probability, every great spiritual revival in the church will be connected as effect and cause with a deeper understanding of this book. Every great spiritual revival in the church will be connected. Tim Hanley, that's what I'm praying, will be the case through this book. This book is the most comprehensive statement of Christianity and of the gospel anywhere. And I'm going to put it right up front to you what I am praying. My prayer is that God will use this magnificent book to change lives. It is that kind of a book because that's what the gospel does. Let's give our attention in Romans chapter 1. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness 
by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, will you open up this book to us? And will you open up our hearts and minds to this book because this is your word? Will you cause your spirit to move among us and work in us? We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Some things very quickly before we jump into the text. The book is written by the Apostle Paul. You can do all kinds of reading on that, hundreds and hundreds of pages, but basically everybody agrees. This is one, one book where there isn't a great deal of controversy over who the author was. It was written to Christians in Rome. We will see Jewish and Gentile Christians. It was written uh, probably around 56 to 57 A.D. And the general theme, which we'll get to in a, a couple of weeks, and we'll keep coming back to that, uh, would, we will find uh, later in chapter 1, but it's the righteousness of God. Now, when we say the righteousness of God, that is what God has perfectly what we absolutely do not have naturally and what he gives as a gift to his people. And so we will see all aspects of that. That's the gospel. By the way, if you're taking notes, uh, and uh, because we'll, we'll be hitting this a lot, for righteousness, write RTS. <laughs> Okay, that will save you a lot of letters in the, in the next uh, number of months. Don't write out righteousness every time because I'll be two points a, a ahead before you get that written down. So let's first of all look at the bearer of the gospel, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. What do we know about Paul? Well, he... Uh, was called Saul. In terms of his background, he's from Tarsus. His family was well-to-do. Uh, he had the, the finest schooling, trained under a well-known rabbi, uh, Gamaliel. He became a Pharisee like his father. In fact, he was so zealous for uh, the Jewish faith that he persecuted the church. 
We saw this in, uh, when we went through the book of Acts. And he was good at it. In terms of his conversion, you can go back and look at it in Acts chapter 9. He was confronted by Jesus who spoke to Saul on the road to Damascus. And uh, here's, what, here's what Jesus said. Remember, he's persecuting the church. Jesus said to him, why are you persecuting me? Jesus was already in heaven. You know what that means is that ISIS better take note because when you touch the people of God, you're persecuting Jesus. And he takes that personally. And so, from that, he was struck blind. He was converted to, to Christ. He recognized Jesus as his Lord and Savior. So what do you do with a, a guy who's trained uh, on, you know, in the finest training in, in, in Judaism? How is God going to use him? Well, he sent him to seminary. I'm calling these his seminary years. Uh, what we know is in Galatians, he explains that he went away to Arabia, uh, not consulting, this is what it says, not consulting with anyone. And then after three years, he went up to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if that's why they make a Masters of Divinity, that all of us in the PCA are required uh, before you can get ordained. Masters of Divinity takes at least three years, uh, typically. And some of us, it took longer anyway, but uh, it takes, it, it's designed for three years. And uh, so he's trained. He's with Jesus. And he calls himself in this passage a servant. That's how he identifies himself. Uh, it literally means slave. Some of your versions may even say that. He doesn't start with anything else in terms of his identity. He doesn't uh, start with his credentials. But he said, this is what you need to know. I'm a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. We all know people who introduce themselves by their accomplishment. I know pastors that do that. You've met people that do that. And what it, what it causes me to do when I meet people like that is to think how, how insecure they must be to think that the first thing you've got to do is throw out whatever you see as your own accomplishments. And you know what? Paul could have done that. He had plenty. And, and there are places. He's not ashamed of his background. He's not ashamed of things he accomplished. And, and it, it, they're in the right time, in the right context, he talks about those. But here he begins by saying, look, you and, and some of you Romans, you're slaves. Well, you need to know that's my identity. But I'm a slave 
to the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> that's a truly converted man. And that's who Paul is. And then he said, I was called to be an apostle. That means a sent one. Apostles were ones chosen by, by Jesus and that saw him after he was resurrected. You say, well, wait a minute. You know, all the others are disciples. When did he see him? Well, at the very least on the road to Damascus and then perhaps for the next three years somewhere in Arabia. But that's why he has apostleship. He was called to that. And, and that's, that's a key there. It's not something that he conjured up. That was the last thing he wanted to, uh, would, have, would have wanted to be when he started on to the road to Damascus. He was, he was on his way to persecute Christians. He didn't want to be a Christian, and he certainly didn't want to be one that is sent out by God. And then what's he sent out for? The gospel of God. And that's where I got the title for this series. I'm not the first one to use it that way. Um, some have called Romans the, the gospel according to Paul. And, and I think that's probably a good description, but I think the Apostle Paul wouldn't have wanted us to, to call it that. Um, he calls it the gospel of God. And that's what we will see here. I love how God works out his providence. We'll look at this more when we look at some of the, his prayers uh, next week. But Paul talks about being prevented from uh, visiting Rome. See that later in the chapter. So he had, he had never been there. He didn't plant that church. And evidently, there were, he wanted to go to Rome, but he was somehow providentially prevented from going to Rome by God. So what happens? Here's what happened. The church is established. He wants them to have apostolic teaching, which he wanted to do in person. That's always better than uh, writing or writing a letter. But God said, no, you know, you can't go, at least not at this time. And so that's why we have this great letter from him. What we have contained in uh, Romans is probably the body of teaching that he would have done had he been there in person. And it's possible that he wouldn't have written all that if he was teaching all that in person. And so God in his good providence saw fit to prevent him from going, and we are the benefactors from that. So let's take a look as uh, he introduces the gospel of God. In summary, the gospel of God is Jesus. That's, that's what you got to know right there. That is the gospel of God because we'll be expanding on all these areas. Let me just point out how the gospel is Jesus. Gospel means good news. It is a declaration of hope 
for uh, his people. Look at verse 2. This is, this is how it's Jesus. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets to the Holy Scriptures. So what he's saying is this isn't new. The whole Old Testament that especially you Jews are going to be familiar with, this is what it was pointing to. This is what we've been talking about. Everything that I'm going to talk to you about is his great plan that the Old Testament looked forward to. And then he's uh, about to present that. Verse 3, concerning his son. So the gospel of God is about Jesus Christ. And then Paul starts to describe Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now there's two things here immediately. By mentioning David, Paul is referring to how a thousand years earlier, God had promised King David that from his family, God would produce the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. So he says, this isn't new. In fact, look, this is is the one that, that was promised to David way back then. But then when he says, according to the flesh, it's speaking of the human nature of the Lord Jesus. Remember, from a, from a Christian perspective, we'll see this in the book as well. We see him as being fully God, but also fully man. That's the beauty of the incarnation. God becoming flesh. And then verse 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in, uh, in power, there he is, fully God, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, uh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this is not saying that he became the Son of God at that point when he was resurrected. What it's saying is that the resurrection attested uh, once again of who he is that he was fully God. And then verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. So Paul's call was to speak this gospel not just to the Jews, which by the way, if you think strategically with Paul's background and all of that, Who should he go to? Well, if I'm doing an evaluation, if I'm evaluating church planters, I'd say, oh, this guy's perfect to to go to the Jews. He's got the background. He speaks their language. He he is a, a Jew. Let's send him to the Jews. And who does God send him to? The Gentiles. Who gets the glory then when anything happens? God. Absolutely. Now, with the Romans, you you see both of them there. So he's, he's emphasizing here that this gospel, this gospel goes to all. And that was that was radical to them. That was a big change. 
That was hard for the Jews to hear. But maybe Paul was the one to say that, right? So you're going to hear the word radical a lot in this book. Um, but I want you to, to look at the radical benefits of the gospel. Uh, Paul didn't start the church in Rome. It is likely that the first converts uh, that, that came back and started the church were probably at Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. They were converted there. They came back. And because they were truly converted, they had to gather, they had to worship, and they had to start a church. That's what happens when, when people are really converted. They've got to gather and worship. And so we see uh, how he gives them a reminder of who they are in Christ. He says this, verse 6, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's, let's look at the identity that he, he emphasizes to them. As he's greeting them, he gives his identity. And then he says, look, I... I want you to first and foremost to remember who you are in Christ. He says you are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So that's not a, a statement of who they are, but whose they are. Who they belong to. Who possesses them. So like Paul, who uh, is saying he's a slave of Jesus, those trusting in Christ alone, and that goes for us here, those trusting in Christ alone for our eternal life belong to Jesus Christ. That's our identity. And then he goes on and talks about them being loved by God. Now, why was that so important for the Christians in Rome? Because they were hated by everybody else. They were hated probably by their family, at least any of their family that didn't convert. They were hated by the society. The Christians were accused of many things, falsely accused of all kinds of things. And so Rome hated them. When they were persecuted, there was no resistance because they were hated by those around them. And so Paul says all of those things are true, but you're loved by God. Now that doesn't necessarily change our circumstance, but it changes everything. And he's saying, look, here's your identity. You're so used to everyone having uh, hatred toward you. And probably a lot of these people would end up being martyred in very awful ways. But he said, look, yeah, this may not change that. 
But your identity is you're loved by God. And then he uses the phrase called to be saints. Being a, a saint is not something only a few people are elected to by a church. It is the calling of a believer. A calling to be set apart. A calling that makes everything different in your life. A calling to live a holy and obedient life before God. One teacher said this, I don't care for any kind of Christianity that doesn't mean that a man's cat and dog are better for it. <laughs> Let me read it again. Surprised you, didn't it? I don't care for any kind of Christianity that doesn't mean that a man's cat and dog are better for it. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, if you're, if you're a, a real Christian, it's going to make a difference in everything in your whole life. Even your pets will benefit if you're really in Christ. And so he talks about them being called to be saints. And our relationship with Christ should affect everything in our life. And everyone and everything around us, if it's genuine. And then Paul announces that which he hopes for them, grace and peace. And we see this in a lot of his letters. Grace is needed for salvation. And, and we're pretty good about knowing about that, that we are saved by grace. But what we sometimes miss is that we've got to live every day by grace. Every day after that. The only way we can get through is by grace. And then he talks about peace that comes only from Christ. Regardless of the turmoil in their society, he offers the peace with God. Now here's what I want to do. I want us to be reminded of our identity our identity in Christ. If you are trusting in Christ alone for your eternal life, you are these things that, that he's just mentioned. But much more even beyond that. So let me ask you to bow. And I want to read these to you and then we will pray. Let's bow. Here's what it means to be beloved by God, to belong to Jesus. God is your Father. You are so valuable that you have been bought with a high price. He has loved you with an everlasting love. He has loved you before the foundation of the world. He is your protector, so don't fear. He is your provider, 
so don't worry. Nothing can separate you from his love. You are complete in Christ. But only he can complete you. No person or thing or things can complete you. Only Jesus. You are chosen by God and dearly loved. You are a new creation. God's own handiwork. Come home. And he will throw you the biggest party you've ever seen. You are a child of the living God. Father, how we thank you that our identity is not what we conjure up. It's not what others think we are. But when you have redeemed us, when you have called us to be your own, we are just that, beloved by you and children of the living God. Will you help us this week, Lord, to live according to our calling, not in our own strength or power, but by your grace and peace. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.